Hello, and welcome back to the Journal of Oncology Practice podcast by ASCO. This is Dr. Bob Miller, consultant editor at the JOP. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about a topic which is pretty hot these days, which is social media, more specifically, healthcare-related social media. There was an article in the September 2012 Journal of Oncology Practice entitled, Practical Guidance, the Use of Social Media in Oncology Practice. Now, this was not an evidence-based guideline, but rather it represented the impressions and consensus opinions of a working group which was composed of members of the ASCO Integrated Media and Technology Committee as it related to the responsible use of social media for the oncology professional. Um, I'll say at the beginning, uh, give you a disclaimer that I was one of the authors uh, of the article, but I'm, I'm going to let my guests do the talking tonight. So let me introduce uh, the people who were kind enough to join me this evening. First with us uh, from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center is uh, Don Dizon. Don is a medical oncologist who focuses on women's cancers and female sexual health. Don, it's great to have you tonight. Thank you very much for asking. Also with us is uh, Mike Thompson. Mike is a community oncologist and cancer researcher with interests in clinical trials and malignant hematology. He has been active in social media, especially Twitter, at the ASCO and the ASH meetings. And thank you, Mike, for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Also, I'm pleased to introduce Claire Johnston. Claire is the social media manager for the American Society of Clinical Oncology, where she is responsible for ASCO's social media strategy and digital engagement policies, as well as overseeing the portfolio of social media channels. And Claire, welcome to you as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let me talk a little bit about the article. Let me, let me start by asking Claire, what was the, the working definition of social media which was used for this paper, and how would you categorize social media by purpose, say? I think the working definition we used in the JOP article offers a good description. We describe social media as the number of online and mobile sources that really support information sharing, community building, idea generation, and forums for discussion. Mm -hmm. We can also break down social media by purpose. So this includes professional networking, uh, LinkedIn is an example, social networking, Facebook, Google+, recommending and filtering platforms like Yelp and Delicious, media sharing, Flickr and YouTube are some examples, content production, blogs, Twitter, and location-based services, an example of which would be uh, Foursquare. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly an abbreviated list, of, of course. There are many, many others. I think it's amazing how many of these things are just part of our culture now. And I think part of it, it's because, you know, almost all this stuff is free, right? I mean, you, you don't have to pay software fees for most of these things. And so I, I sometimes think that's one of the reasons um, social media has become so accessible. Do you find that in your work at ASCO that, that everyone's doing it because it's just easy to get a Twitter account or get a Facebook account? I think so. It, it's really changed the entire landscape of information sharing. I think, you know, that you can really categorize the internet in in places with the invention of fire or Gutenberg's printing press. That it really makes a, a publisher out of all of us. 
So let me ask, Mike, you've, you've written some on this topic, both for, for this article and elsewhere. Talk about the physician's use of social media. What, what are the different ways that a, a physician might employ social media? So three ways we identified in this article were uh, for professional education and continuous uh, professional development. Uh, number two, public health messaging or education. And number three, uh, direct engagement with specific patients uh, for purposes of clinical care. So going through them for professional education, you can follow Twitter on New England Journal of Medicine, JOP, JCO, uh, ASCO Post or ASCO Updates. And much of that is not the uh, formal continuous medical education or CME, but is usually more informal reading, such as you might do with reading journals casually, but you can do it often in a quicker way. Uh, social media use in oncology has increased um, as evidenced by the article by uh, uh, Chaudhry et al., which uh, uh, Dr. Miller was on from the ASCO 2010 and 2011 meetings. Uh, we don't have data for 2012, but we are seeing people using it both to learn about um, information and to share it with others. So number two for public health messaging or education, um, this can be used to discuss the clinical significance of new research findings. So even if something is statistically significant, really how important is this and what are people's different views on it? Uh, is this um, a consensus amongst oncologists or is it? You know, is there some uh, discussion? Also, we can discuss new uh, FDA drug approvals and uh, express our excitement about that. Uh, we can discuss general aspects of clinical care, such as supportive care, or I know Don has been uh, blogging about uh, sexual health and cancer, and I've had some things talking about uh, CPR and, and how that relates. So I think um, we can share some of that information more broadly and quicker than we could by uh, writing a formal uh, paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and number three is direct engagement with specific patients for clinical care. And I have not done this. Uh, I occasionally have had unknown individuals, which might be patients or family members, contact me on Twitter. And what I try to do is provide a general response or links to information but not to engage in specific problem solving given the limitations of time, space, and uh, the information content available I have about them. Uh, there are varieties of tele-oncology services which are being used at institutional levels, uh, universities, and uh, private companies to uh, fill uh, this um, interesting niche that's forming. So, Don, have, have you personally had any patients contact you in using any form of social media, whether it's, you know, Facebook or reply to your blogs, any of your own patients uh, try to interact in that way? I have personally made it um, fairly difficult to uh, access my Facebook account by uh, essentially using um, a name that's a true name, but it's, it's one that only family and friends can uh, access. And I think that's a really important point. And it's quite frankly, not something we can do internationally. I just learned that in the United Kingdom, for example, a friend of mine who is also in medicine cannot use a pseudonym on Facebook per um, the United Kingdom laws. Now, I am personally not using a pseudonym, but I'm using a form of my name, which is only uh, one that family and friends can access. And I think the reason is that is important uh, is it touches on something that Mike said, and um, you're probably alluding to um, engagement with patients on social media sites. And I do think we have to be quite careful when we're engaging patients of ours 
on social media. As Mike mentioned, I do write a blog for ASCO, and it's really on experiences I have as an oncologist. I personally have not had the experience uh, of patients contacting me through the ASCO website on Twitter or in other um, outlets. But what has been interesting is uh, the engagements I have with folks I have never met right, uh, right. who are sharing their own experiences. And, uh, you know, and I think the whole aspect of you know, triggering similar events, it goes a long way for the oncologist, in this case, my own experience, making it seem as if my experience is actually quite universal. And I think for patients, it's to see that their oncologist, it's a window into their own oncologist, I think. And I'm, I'm hopefully providing a view of us in this profession as also human. I know um, many of you uh, read uh, famous blogger Dr. Brian Vardabedian, who uh, writes the 33 Charts blog. Brian is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Baylor, and he talks about a concept he calls public thinking. His theory is that uh, physicians may have an obligation to sort of share their thoughts publicly about these sort of issues. Maybe obligation is too strong of a word, but... But I know that um, increasingly as this expectation rises that our patients and, and others um, expect to see us, see us as physicians in this space, uh, that this may be a, an example where we're, you know, we're a little more naked, you know, we're out there a little bit more. So I've been lucky myself. I haven't had very, I haven't really had any patients contact me directly, but I know a few of them, you know, follow me on Twitter and a few other places. And so I I have a little bit of unease. Um, I'm, I'm very happy doing Twitter, but there are times when I, I sa- say to myself, you know, this I've got to maintain that professional demeanor at some level, uh, pretty much all the time. I don't, I don't know if that, that's your guys' reaction too. Well, you know what is curious about that is um, the one area where I find people do try to contact me are folks who are seeking second opinions who who contact my office. And then I would get an invitation to connect on LinkedIn, for example, with someone of the same name. So it's an, an interesting experience. And uh, it sort of does expose how naked one can potentially be in social media, where people can, you know, follow you on Twitter and not necessarily follow you. They can just, you know, see what your they can search your username and they can see what you've posted and and follow you from a distance, and you don't and know it. Best right. I know right. exactly, yeah. and not know it at all. How is how do you think oncology is different when it comes to social media? Some of the things we've been talking about about maintaining professionalism and boundaries might apply to you know any medical specialty. Do you think there is something fairly unique about the relationship oncologists might have with these new media? Well, I think there are some generalities that apply both to all social media users. Uh, and that then that apply to physicians. But certainly with oncology, anytime that the word cancer is brought up, there comes fear and anxiety. And I think uh, we do have to be cognizant about how we approach open communications. Also, um, there is much written, especially previously, about negative connotations and uh, guidelines and rules with social media. But you know, I think also on a positive aspect, having hope is good and that we can try to contextualize various forms of information, including new findings, uh, to hopefully uh, avoid some of the yo-yo of positive negative studies 
from non-nuanced headlines. And this can be sometimes difficult with short uh, messaging formats such as Twitter. Mm-hmm. But one way around that, of course, is by linking to information and, and additional contacts or blogs that can be helpful. But I, I think there is a difference with oncology uh, compared to potentially some other medical specialties. Don, do you find that to be the case in your practice? Um, I do. I actually agree with Mike quite a bit. I um particularly in this era of personalized medicine and oncology where you know we're learning more and more about pathways which literally 5 years ago you know it was nice to be able to show off to your friends that you knew what pathways involving mTOR were but now they're actually becoming quite prominent in therapeutic ways in oncology coupled with all the new drug approvals that are targeting uh, molecular pathways one of the ways I think, and Mike touches on this, uh, that that social media is very useful, is a contextualizing all of these developments, approvals, um, trials by you know essentially crowdsourcing. So using social media outlets, Twitter, posing the question, "What do you guys think about this data? What do you guys think about this trial?" You know, and getting some feedback live, and not necessarily from thought leaders but from people on the ground who are on those media channels as well who may actually have a very nuanced look at that data. One of the things we, we argue and, and debate about all the time in academic lectures is survival endpoints. And when you, when you ask those questions on Twitter or, or a study comes out and says, oh, progression-free survival was improved by two months, and you see the commentary that comes back from all sorts of places, oncologists, nurses, patients, or, or, and, and advocacy groups, that can help inform an opinion about those, those data sets that are actually much more nuanced than one could otherwise get just from either the popular press or from editorials in the best journals in oncology. Well, I think it's humbling at times. You you get these opinions that you say, wow, I, I read this paper. This was my analysis. This is how I think it's going to apply to my patients. And then somebody, say a patient advocacy group, you know, they've got a totally different spin and their their perspective is is really is key. You know, it's, they're the ones experiencing the illness or whatever or dealing with the toxicity. So I I've certainly been educated more times than not when I when someone responds to something I shared on Twitter or or on a blog. Yeah, I've been in the same situation, and I think um, I, I bet any physician who has posted "this is exciting" <laughs> has gotten something back saying, "I don't understand why you find that particularly yeah, exciting." Not, not, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Let me let me go back to the to the paper. One of the things I wanted to point out to the reader was that there were there were some good uh, resources in the paper. Um, in in appendix two, we list a uh, compendium of social media policies and guidelines from a lot of different organizations, like the American Medical Association, the British Medical Association, and I think it was about thirty five different uh, entities, hospitals, and medical centers, and so forth. Um, Mike, what do you think were some of the important concepts that that we learned by by doing this social media? What, what were some of the themes that ran through these these policies? So in reviewing uh, this paper, I, it reminded me how much work went into reviewing so many policies. And uh, even though uh, I'm biased uh, like you guys, I think it was a very good paper for consolidating a lot of information. And one thing I think long guidelines are often not helpful 
And I like the Mayo Clinic's approach to reevaluating their social media guidelines and adjusting over time as social use of these new tools changes and treating it like a fluid organism. Uh, I know Ferris Tamimi, the medical director at Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media, said that uh, the biggest risk in healthcare social media is not participating in a conversation. And he came up with a 12-word social media policy, don't lie, don't pry, don't cheat, can't delete, don't steal, don't reveal. Of course, for those of us that like a little bit more uh, to it, you know, we, we had in our paper uh, you know, some generalized concepts that seem to ring through all of the places in uh, Appendix 2 that we reviewed, including uh, concepts of establishing ownership of activity, establishing a patient uh, research subject authorization and consent if you're going into that, uh, respect confidentiality of individuals and institutions and compliance with state and federal privacy laws, uh, res respecting copyrights, separate personal from professional presence, uh, disclose the, your role, relationship, and any conflicts of interest, review state professional licensure requirements, uh, review medical records policies and law, and review malpractice insurance coverage, uh, and use disclosure to reinforce that social media communications do not constitute medical advice, and that your responses may not be uh, timely, and the accuracy is not uh, assured, and communications are not confidential, et cetera, as Don was pointing out. So uh, I think where we've seen people getting into problems and whether guideline or not guideline-based, is where they are not observing the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are things that doctors should be practicing in general, but can become more obvious uh, with social media. So I think uh, understanding these guidelines and understanding for promulgating new guidelines, that some level of continuous assessment and uh, fluidity, uh, such as the Mayo Clinic guidelines, needs to be obtained. You know, I, I look at this this table that this is table two uh, in the paper, and um, the the one uh, recommendation that I'm just going to speak personally here that that I've always struggled with a little bit is this idea of separating the professional from the personal. I, I don't know if any of you do this differently when it when it comes to certain things like Facebook. I don't have a professional Facebook account, but. I, I don't know. I, I know I've heard that advice, but I think that's hard to do. And I, 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 I worry sometimes if that recommendation is made loud and clear, while it may be a best practice and the safest, I, I think it's going to inhibit use of, of something like Twitter if you, you know, tweeting under two different accounts or something. I agree with you. I think when we wrote that and when the guidelines reviewed, there's really for uh, very separate accounts, but I will usually be on topic but occasionally we'll go off into random things talking about like media rights or space or Badger football games or something. And any of the feedback I've gotten is that really personalizes uh, people more. Uh, and I, like Don, rigorously separate my Facebook account from professional account. But there are some people, as we know, that have uh, set up separate Facebook accounts and have been very um, constructive with that. But I agree, you know, this is an area that's evolving even since we – uh, reviewed the guidelines that set this up. So I agree with uh, what Mike just said uh, regarding the professional and personal separation, but it does remind me of something that Claire alluded to in the very beginning about how social media has really revolutionized uh, medical practice and communication today. It has also, I, I think, uh, really separated generational physicians. So 
I do know some physicians who see social media, Twitter, Facebook as superfluous and sort of uh, not something really worth their time and uh, you know, an exercise uh, of play rather than professionalism. And I see the opposite extreme as well of younger physicians who are you know, using the same account and really uh, mixing professional with personal. I see a danger there, just like Mike does. And I think the more you are aware of the power of social media, and certainly uh, uh, there have been experiences, very publicized experiences in the political arena, which show the power and the peril, you need to take these things seriously. And you make a decision. And I think Bob, your your use of Twitter is very clear about the way you use it and the fact that, you know, someone can go to your profile and see exactly who you're following. There is thought in who you follow and and about what you're you're tweeting. It's it's thoughtful. And I think the one thing we wanted to stress in this article is however you're using social media, you should be thoughtful because this has the potential of uh, really solidifying your reputation or very quickly destroying it. When a tweet is out, it is something that is out and cannot be easily retracted. Claire, let me ask you about the perspective of a professional society. So you're the social media manager for ASCO, which has uh, obviously a prominent place in in our field as oncologists. But I I have a feeling your take might be a little bit different on this. So, So in your role... How do you view some of these concepts we've been talking about and, and sort of what, what are the guiding principles that, that you or someone in a comparable position in, in a society or an organization that's very public, um, what, what are the guiding principles that you sort of have to follow when you're using social media? So ASCO really looks at social media as another tool for communication. The, the medium really allows us to not only share information but allows for useful discussion, which isn't always possible in many other forms of communication. And currently, we have our 12 social media spaces, and these span a gamut from informational short messaging of Twitter to emotionally rich commentaries from our oncologist on our professional networking site. We try to embrace the spectrum to provide meaningful and useful spaces, so to speak, for professional networking resources, resources for education, patient information, information about our donor work, as well as our thorough coverage of our meetings, journals, and other organizational priorities and initiatives. But we're very careful about curating content for each of these spaces, and we also work very hard to cultivate meaningful engagement with those that interact with us online. Can you talk a little bit about that? So do you have an organized strategy? I mean, is someone always, I assume, someone is always watching the Twitter channel if something comes comes through. But how, how, how does that work operationally? I'm, I'm really curious about that. Sure. We have social media guidelines and a social media policy in place that help to focus and guide all of the interactions that we have online. So, for example, we go through a formalized process when we want to create a new social media channel. We have 
a system of criteria that we will bring to bear to make sure that all of those criteria are satisfied before we'll create a new channel. And the same, the same sort of approach informs following people for our flagship Twitter channel at ASCO or the way in which we reply to comments. We'll try to reach out to subject matter experts internally, make sure that we have fully formed information to share back on our online spaces. So we do have formalized pieces in place and we try to be nimble enough to react and um, respond to people in a timely fashion as well. So yes, we do have formalized guidelines, but we try to be nimble and respond to people in a timely fashion and in keeping with the real spirit of social media, I think. Do you find that the um, comments that you get on social media back from the audience, if you will, does that sometimes move ASCO as an organization in a different direction by policy, or, or maybe not even at that level? But I mean, is it is there an opportunity for, uh, say, a respondent on the Facebook page or someone tweeting back at you? Um, is there a possibility that gets pushed all the way to the top, to even the board or the or the CEO level? I think there's a really interesting symbiotic relationship at play. Uh, we have some guidelines and some policies in place that grew out of larger stances or postures that we've taken at ASCO. But in some ways, uh, we need to be nimble and respond to the type of questions and feedback or even ideas that are introduced that maybe we hadn't considered. So I think that often we are faced with the unknown. So it's up to us to be as prepared as possible and embrace those moments and um, try to take those as precedents and respond in a way that's informed and um, rooted in our our mission and our cause, but is also open enough to moving with the times. Well, it sounds like it's a lot of learning opportunities that present themselves at any minute. Oh, certainly. And I, th- I think in some ways it, it's in keeping with the spirit of of the scientific method in some ways, if I if I can go as far to say that, is that we do have methodologies in place, but we're also open to receiving new information and making changes based upon um, good, useful, vetted information. Let me ask Don about a, a related topic that the paper covered, which is the issue of clinical trials awareness. So I, I have a feeling that uh, if anyone... Uh, any of our listeners read this article, that, that may have been an area that they weren't, uh, weren't thinking about when it comes to social media. The paper talks a little bit about how social media can be used to raise awareness of cancer clinical trials and even, even improve recruitment under certain circumstances. So, Don, what, what special precautions do physicians uh, need to keep in mind if they want to use uh, Twitter or Facebook, for example, to, to spread the word about a clinical trial? I think the most important uh, thing to keep in mind about the use of social media and specifically Twitter or Facebook um, are to do so with, with uh, very clear guidance from the institutional review boards, which um, are locally governing clinical research, uh, but have to operate uh, under the auspices of the Department of Health and Human Services and the Code of Federal Regulations. 
um, for any investigators who want to use um, these social media outlets, I think the power to, say, publicize a research interest or opening or newly opened clinical trials or even trials that are struggling for recruitment are all possible in, in this arena. Um, you're not limited by uh, your uh, immediate catchment areas and uh, and you can ut- really utilize uh, these channels to, to publicize you know areas of interest to you personally and trials that you are personally interested in either as an investigator or even as a bystander um, you know these communities tend to be very close uh, and very uh, disease specific and they are always looking for um, trials that are going to be of interest within their own communities so tapping into those resources are an obvious fit for all of us who do clinical research in oncology. However, there are uh, certain limitations to that. If you go beyond just, hey, listen, there's a trial and it's really interesting and you should take a look at it, I think that might be fine. Anything more than that, you need to get IRB review or at least guidance locally because there's a fine line between publicizing a trial and actively using a channel to recruit for that trial. And and that's, I think, where the ground becomes very gray. And I'd be interested to hear um, Mike's take on this as well. There are certain aspects of recruitment that are allowed and also not allowed uh, um, by IRB policies. And the more specific you get into your clinical trial, the more it becomes a source of advertising. And once you meet a certain bar, which unfortunately is very defined at a local level at this point because OHRP guidance is not terribly clear, uh, becomes very tricky. So if, for example, you opened a Facebook page for your trial and you were soliciting soliciting for potential patients and you had your eligibility criteria on it and us and you know you were corresponding with potential patients an IRB might look at that and say you know this is a recruitment tool that you didn't take um, that was not in your protocol and that you didn't clear through the IRB and they could potentially shut it down so I think when you get to the point where you're going to use these media channels in a very specific way, it's always better to go for guidance locally before you do it than to try to retroactively rationalize why it was or was not done. Mike, what's your experience been with that? So again, I think our uh, we have a lot of details in the JOP manuscript, including some direct quotes from the Office of the Inspector General. And it is clear, I think, that if you just tweet out or put uh, messaging out about the information that's publicly available on clinicaltrials.gov, that does not need IRB guidance. And that the uh, United States government through the FDA and the NCI often does put out information publicizing clinical trials available at the NCI or at other places. Uh, What is of uh, critical importance is that uh, in the United States, we only enroll uh, about five or less percent of adults on uh, clinical uh, trials for cancer patients. 
And this compares to about 60% in pediatric oncology. And according to the Health Information Trends Survey from cancer.gov, uh, a government site, only about 30%, 34% of Americans have, uh, or 34% of Americans have not heard of a clinical trial. So we are not currently getting out to as many people why they should be participating in trials or the, the availability. And at least one aspect to addressing this was an NCI steering committee for multiple myeloma, which is an area I'm interested in. They had an ASH 2012 abstract where they looked for clinical trial accrual barriers. And one barrier uh, they identified was education. And they identified one way to potentially overcome education, uh, both for patients and providers, about the significance of new clinical trials was with the use of social media. So I think social media is very powerful, and we can really help people. Uh, and that can be the principal investigators for studies, that can be institutions, and that can be individual patients, especially those with rare diseases. Uh, and actually in the effort help pharma and drug development, because if we can develop drugs faster, it can potentially be cheaper and more efficient and get, get it to patients sooner. However, there are a number, number of uh, things that need to be watched, including avoiding coercion and to provide the uh, information that's publicly available. And I think if you do that, you're pretty safe. If you go into other areas and are really um, selling a trial, I think that is an area that we identified in this JOP article that people could potentially get into trouble with. I would point the readers to table three in the paper, which really goes into much of the details of what both Mike and I are speaking about um, in terms of using Twitter, blogs, and Facebook. And it really comes down to what Mike just said very clearly. If your institution or the public or the government feels your, your efforts have gone beyond just pointing people to publicly available information and crosses that threshold of, quote, selling a trial, that becomes advertising. And, and that's, that's where it becomes very tricky. And the other thing I'll just quickly say, and again, we mentioned this as well, disclosure, which we talked about in the beginning, your involvement in that trial, whether it is your institution is getting research funding or you are a speaker for that drug company, all of that needs to be publicly available and should be actually acknowledged on whatever platform you're speaking on. Uh, as a blogger myself, I think it is important that for folks who are blogging about clinical trials, that acknowledgement be made and, and be made up front. And again, this whole notion of being transparent should really uh, filter through everything that we do in social media. So let's talk about some specific examples. In the paper, uh, Table A2, which was at the end, gave some use cases for social media in oncology. Now, I've always said that it's very easy to find the negative things that are written about social media. So, so let's take a moment and focus on some of the positives. So let me ask each of you, maybe you can just tell me from your own experience, can you give some specific examples of how social media can be used to improve, say, physician-patient communication, enhance public health, or, say, individual health behaviors, or really anything else that you see as a positive through, through your work. So let, let me start with, with you, Claire. I consider one of the great strengths of ASCO as an organ, organization is the ability to share oncologists' vetted information for 
patients and those that care for those with cancer. We have wonderful meetings, wonderful information, and all the work that we've done to make that information widely available. And what social media allows people to do is to not only access this this valuable information, but to share it. Uh, Something that we've started to do in the past year is offer live coverage of our thematic and annual events. And this is a really great way for people to get access to the information that otherwise they, they never would be able to access before. I think, too, with all of our, our patient resource information, that with the, the, with the panoply of information that is available online, it can lead to confusion or distress on the part of a lot of people. So to have a central space with information that people can trust, I think is incredibly valuable. One of the ways I think Twitter has been incredibly useful is to promote ideas beyond the latest clinical trials, but really informing how to improve the doctor-patient relationship and clinical practice at its most basic level. Really through blogging and through Twitter, I've sort of developed an interest in communication and I think it sort of goes into what, Bob, you were talking about in the beginning, uh, just about um, engaging the public and uh, humanizing medicine. And I, I am hopeful that my efforts in promoting a new awareness of communication has been a positive one all the way around. So uh, I work in a small town uh, that people probably don't recognize but I get to interact with people from all over the country and world, including the people I'm talking to right now. And that's amazing. Uh, So if I read something and I have a comment on it, I can post it. Much of the time it's ignored, but I can get commentary back. So uh, there have been times where I've had thought leaders, including chairman at, you know, top cancer centers comment on things. And then that has later led to an engagement with discussing specific patient cases or something offline uh, by phone or by email or whatever. And it's very valuable to be able to use intellectual curiosity and creativity to share with some of your peers. I've also gotten uh, into areas where I didn't know as much, where I'm talking to basic research scientists that I otherwise would not have interacted with, and I'm getting up-to-date information faster than I would via listservs on email or websites. So I feel like I'm um, really cutting edge. Uh, Something kind of interesting that happened to me recently was um, I retweeted something from uh, about open access and then uh, Elaine Shatner picked that up and commented. And then uh, it got picked up by uh, Jack Andraka. He's the uh, 16-year-old who was at the State of the Union address and came up with a a new nanotube uh, detection system for pancreatic cancer. And then he and I communicated back and forth And he is certainly uh, someone I would not have otherwise been having a conversation with. And then I got into a tweet chat uh, with another group of people through that that I otherwise wouldn't have interacted with. So it's very interesting that you can be very, very narrowly focused and learn about your area, but you can get into other areas and meet other people um, outside of uh, your narrow group you would otherwise interact with. So it's just an amazing uh, tool. 
I would agree with that. The whole notion of networking has taken on a, an incredibly new dimension through social media. I don't see how a healthcare professional in the 21st century can thrive without these tools. I, I really don't. And, you know, working uh, now, working in an academic environment for the last few years, I see a few of my colleagues are active um, on Twitter or blogging, but really not very many. Um, you know, some institutions are a little more engaged in this in this manner than others. And I, I think once you start to open the floodgates, I, I think everyone's going to be doing it. But I but I agree with everyone. I think that the opportunities for professional networking are are very very high. And that's you know that's sort of if you will the icing on the cake. I think we all realize the value of um, of being present in this space when it comes to educating patients or 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 sharing and interacting um, at sort of the the the, the public and the, the non-healthcare professional level. But I, I think there's this added bonus of being able to interact with other healthcare professionals that these, these type of tools just opens up for you. Yeah, I would be curious to hear what Claire's take on, on this whole notion of um, getting involved in social media. Uh, from sort of the professional uh, organization of ASCO, what I've certainly heard is um, that tweeting just sounds like so much work. And it seems like that is a big barrier for physicians to get more involved. And I quite frankly will say when I first um, got involved, it was less than a year ago, and Dr. Miller was my first follower. (laughs) (laughs) Now it comes out. (laughs) But it was, you know, I I also thought it was going to be something, I'll open a Twitter account and I probably will never use it. It has seamlessly gotten into my normal and usual workflow. And yet, um, to try to explain that to someone who's not on Twitter is almost impossible. So Claire, what are you hearing at the at the level of ASCO in terms of tweeting and Twitter and social media? Any feedback from oncologists in general? There's a real spectrum of reactions and, and feelings surrounding social media. I think that Some people have responded with curiosity and have embraced it, and I think others are more comfortable with other forms of communication. So there's a real real breadth of reactions to it, and we try to be amenable to the diversity of, of feelings and opinions and try to to facilitate in any way that we can, but also recognize that some people are more comfortable in using paper forms of communication or <laughs> taking out a tablet. <laughs> so it's uh, we try to try to be open to the entire spectrum. Well, I think it's obvious to our listeners here that there's a lot of, of passion uh, with this group, certainly. Um, I think each of you um, individually um, has engaged with social media at uh, at a really uh, at a really high level and and use this in in your professional roles uh, very effectively. So, want to acknowledge that and uh, just want to thank you all for uh, joining me tonight on the podcast. Uh, we're really looking forward to uh, to hearing uh, our listeners' reactions. Thank you so much, Bob. I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. Glad to do it again. Thank you. It was it was a real pleasure. And many thanks to my guests, Mike Thompson, Don Dizon, and Claire Johnston, for a great discussion tonight. I hope you take a few minutes to read the full paper, which is in the September 2012 Journal of Oncology Practice. Again, it's entitled, Practical Guidance, the Use of Social Media in Oncology Practice. 
Don't miss the glossary of social media terms, which is in Appendix 1 of the paper. And thanks, as always, for downloading our podcasts. Please join me next month for another interview with a JOP author. This is Dr. Bob Miller for the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Thanks so much for your attention.